You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. Welcome to the Angus Underground. Folks, we've got a really special episode today. We're going to be interviewing one of my favorite people in this business, Bud Copel. Yeah, what a great guy. He's going to tell us about his program. He's going to talk to us a little bit about sell expenses and everything that goes into putting on an auction. Guys, before we dive into the interview with Bud, though, we get a lot of correspondence from our listeners and and we're so thankful for that. And we've had the opportunity to meet so many wonderful people in the process. But, but we received a message from one of our loyal listeners, uh, John Nelson. John is uh, from Wyoming. Joe and I had the, the privilege of meeting John and his family at the Coleman Angus sale. And, and then they came on up to the Montana Ranch sale. But John had the. Uh, unfortunate experience that uh, I think we all dread, unimaginable experience. He lost his wife here recently. John reached out to me, well, to all of us, and he just wanted us to know that what we're doing on this podcast meant so much to him. And uh, I just can't imagine what he's going through. And John, we're with you, buddy. We're with Uh. you. And I think this is a this is a tough one. I mean, we we've discussed how we want to acknowledge this on the podcast because it's important to us. And when David and I, I didn't know the Corbin at the time, but when we discussed this endeavor in person, we always wanted to keep it real, and we always wanted to be giving the listeners a piece of us for real. And um, this is real life, guys, and and to think that someone welcomes us into our home to this intimate level is just humbling, and, and I'm glad we were able to bring some joy to their family. I'm glad we were able to bring some education to their family. David actually mentioned the exchange to me now at, at Coleman's sale where where I met the Nelson family, and, and I actually bashfully kind of skipped out of there because of this kind of a weird podcast stardom that exists but all all I can say is it brings a great deal of levity to the impact that we're able to have and 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 trust me that when I say this truly that um you guys have a profound impact on our lives and how we feel about this business too and it's very edifying to be in this business with people that we love and care about and they care about us as well it's very met with a great deal of reciprocity and and John we're just going to ask John didn't ask anything but we'd ask all of you listeners to keep the Nelson family in your thoughts and prayers and um we're going to bring you an episode it's kind of a somber note to start but we wanted to acknowledge that because this is who we are it's an Angus network and it's an Angus community and it's real people with real lives and so our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family and um, we just hope to continue to be a spot for you to find some amount of information and enjoyment. Well said, Joe. And uh, yeah, John, you're in our prayers, buddy. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have Bud Copel. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Join us at Angus Live on March 14th for Volume 2 of the Upchurch Brothers and Guests online sale. This power-packed offering of embryos, flushes, and semen is female-focused and maternal-made with elite genetics from Upchurch Brothers, Shadybrook Angus Farm, and Bucksnort Ranch. From Upchurch Brothers, features include a sex heifer pregnancy sired by Atlantis and embryos sired by Rock. Out of the Emblanet 9116, she's the maternal sister to the popular SAV Abundance and dam of the top-selling heifer of the 2022 Shadybrook sale. Flushes from Pine Coulee Black Cap D35, a stout-made resource daughter whose type and production are the kind to build a herd from, and ZWT Dixie Erica 9396, the youthful 12-year-old 6807 daughter that still looks and moves better than most five-year-old cows. Talk about a rare opportunity. Vince Santini from Shadybrook Angus is turning up the heat with embryos from their foundation, Chloe, 021, sired by Jesse James, Bloodline, and Atlantis. Folks, this is a perfect utter, gorgeous full sister to the $375,000 Coleman Chloe 9275 at Boss Angus. Included in the Shadybrook offering will also be elite embryo matings from the Beauty and Donna families. Jason Meaden and Bucksnort Ranch is digging deep into their donor arsenal by offering a flush from Emblanet 5020. This maternal sister to International is one of the most complete and powerful renowned daughters anywhere in the land. Rounding out the Bucksnort offering will be embryos sired by the ever popular Jesse James. Plan to be with us at Angus Live on March 14th for this can't miss event. Until then, you can view the catalog at angus.org and visit upchurchbrothers.com or call Randall at 256-239-5379 for additional information. We've got a great guest with us today. He's a man, you, you could apply many labels or titles to him. He's a good friend to all of us here on the Angus Underground. But I, I think the best title or the best label is Master Breeder. This is a guy who has, has uh, built his herd from scratch, just coming off one of the most successful bull sales anywhere in the country, uh, and well-deserved, I might add. Please help us welcome in from uh, Danny, South Dakota, Bud Copel. Hi, Bud. Hi. Thanks for the great comments. Don't know if I deserved all that, but you guys are great friends, and I guess that's what friends do is kind of try to push you up a little bit. Well, <laughs> it's early, bud. It's still early. We got we got an hour and fifteen to push you down. Yeah. Well, we got to start somewhere. <laughs> oh man, no, it's 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 a special treat of ours to have you in here, bud. I know when we first started talking about having the Angus Underground podcast, you you were a name that surfaced many times, and the timing never worked out. But uh, we've caught you on the backside of your sale, and I know you've got a lot of free time there. So uh, let's, before we start talking about your, your cow herd and your program, Bud, give us a little background about yourself. Okay. Well, I guess I raised on a farm. Uh, my dad and my mom started this about 50 years ago, and we I grew up raising cat, Angus cattle my whole life. And that's, I guess, the 4-H, and we got more involved and more involved all the time. And with that... Um, we started with dairy cows, and then we started with a few Ang Angus cows, originating some of them from the Ankeny herd, and then a guy in Minnesota 
Wigdahl was his name. And over the years, we built a herd, and I guess my dad always had a love for Angus cattle, and I guess I fell into it with him. Yeah, and and I know when when you were uh, very young, you had some show heifers, you and your sisters, and yeah, we started. Um, well, my first show heifer actually I named after a girl I seen at when we were rodeoing, and I had a crush on her. And I was my first show heifer. It was in 1976. That's my first <laughs> show heifer. She didn't end up being much of a cow, but it's still kind of a funny how that girl still rodeoing. And she's probably close to sixty years old. Oh my! And my, the rest of my, and she's still single. I think she's waiting for me. To be honest with you. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> well, I, I tell you what, you 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 may stop while you're ahead there. We know why you're successful, bud. Um, it's your better half, Bernie. Um, you guys, you guys were high, high school sweethearts, right? Yeah, we started dating when I was uh, between my sophomore and junior year, and. Went together for four years before we got married, and I guess that's the only one I ever knew. And she's not only my wife, but my best friend, and she does a. Without her, the business won't be moving right now. I'm very blessed. Well, I've I've seen that firsthand. I mean, she does an incredible job of uh, keeping you right on track, uh, keeping you going, and and doing a great job with uh, bookwork catalog, and and along the way, you guys raised some great kids. Yeah, very, very, very fortunate to have all my kids and family close to us. They're all within about 60 miles, and I've had 13 grandkids and expecting another one, so we're kind of like a tribe over here. You you are. You are, and uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of people. Uh, you know, someday you're going to have a lot of help. That's the best part. If you guys keep procreating, you're going to have more people in the town than the town has. Now we're we're catching up to Dancy pretty close here. Yeah. <laughs> so your kids, your kids are all adults now, and and uh, they're involved uh, with their own herds. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. We all have actually. We all kind of work together when it comes to field work or harvesting, and when working cattle, we'll help each other out. We each have our own distinct herds, and we have our own places, but we do come together at the sale. Um, we use a lot of the same breeding philosophies, just kind of not an extreme, just try to stay in the middle. And um, the kids use a lot of the sires that we raise. So it makes for a little larger sire groups when we have sales. And that's a little bit of a benefit, too. You know, one one thing, uh, and, and I've had the privilege and pleasure of being at your sale. And I, I watch uh, you and the sons out there and uh, Scott, the son-in-law, you're, you're out there sorting bulls and pinning bulls. And, I'm sure that gets pretty stressful at times. Yeah, it's, you know, when you grew up together or, you know, your whole life, you, you, nobody sorts cattle like your kids. They know what you're thinking. And it's it's not like having somebody come off. And I don't care how many people you've sorted cattle with, your family knows how you're thinking. And I guess very lucky on that, that we get to work together like that together. And, and for the sale that, you know, they fill in and it's just a family operation. There's not a lot of outside help. I mean, when it comes to the clipping, um, we do the clipping, the picture taken. We don't hire nothing done. We're pretty much self, self-do-it people. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about your your uh, children there for a moment. I know Derek. Derek's your oldest, right? Yep. I got Derek. Yep. He took over my dad's place, and they do the cows on share. 
Mm-hmm. And your dad, uh, before we go into your children too far, let's let's talk about your dad. I, I kind of jumped ahead there. Laverne is a very special person and I always enjoy visiting with Laverne. I mean, he's a very knowledgeable cattleman him, himself and he still has cattle, correct? Yeah, he does. He still runs about 200 cows. My son does them on share. He'll never quit. I mean, I don't want him to quit because it keeps him going, but he's one of them guys that's all he knows is to work in, raise Angus cattle. And I guess he's my biggest critic, and he's probably made me what I am because it's always been almost a competition. You're always striving to do better, and you help each other do better. Right, Actually, before the bull sale, this year he actually helped my brother out in Western South Dakota, he moved his calving date, so he needed some bulls. So my dad took some of his share bulls out there, and this year he didn't have any bulls of his own to sell. And about three weeks before the sale, every day, every other day, he was over here looking at the bulls and he's asking questions. And I kept telling my son-in-law Scott, I said, I think he's getting more bulls sold than me. <laughs> and by gosh, if he didn't buy three three bulls himself on the sale, I mean he did his homework and he bought some good ones, but. Um, it's so hard nowadays with the pictures and not being able to see bulls. You almost have to see them to really see what you're buying anymore. And I think that's what he appreciated because so many of the sales are so far and he's not wanting to travel as much as he used to. You bet. But so, so we, uh, we mentioned Derek, who's, uh, working with your dad on shares. And Yeah. Well, Joe's my middle son. He lives about 60 miles West of us. He took over his father-in-law's place and still runs Angus cattle. And then there's Dan. He's my youngest son. He's moving west, too. He lives right now about six miles south, but has a great opportunity. His father-in-law wants to retire, and he's got a great opportunity out there, and he's still going to run Angus and probably sell bulls on the sale. And he also is part owner of Stockman's Livestock, which was the biggest, one of the biggest fat cattle sale barns in the nation. And he does auctioneer in there two to three days a week. And then... Um, my youngest is Kim, and she's a teacher in school. And then her husband, Scott, is also my partner here and works for me. So it's definitely a family operation, and we all kind of try to pull our own weight. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And, uh, yeah, being able to witness that firsthand, that the, the family dynamic is is difficult a lot of times. You know, um, it's great that you guys have enough scope to your operation it's provided some opportunity for uh, for those that wanted to come back to come back. And yeah, I think that's a, a real testament to the uh, the family that you have there. But I mean, when, when I think of the uh, Copel's B&B herd, I think of cows that are extremely functional. They're fundamentally sound, great feet, great udders, and cattle that have quite a bit of longevity. So where did that start? Because we've seen a lot of, a lot of people come into this business and and they gravitate to one area or the other. And, and right now we've got this big push for these uh, extreme numbers. And, and so we're seeing new breeders come in and they latch right onto the numbers and take off. But, but what was it with you that said, hey, I need to first and foremost build this, this foundation of functional cows? I think with anything you do, I don't care if it's from raising corn or any any product you raise, if you always swing for the fence, you know, you strike out a lot, but if you stay in the middle, it seems to, it always seems to come back full term or whatever. And I don't know, I've always, I appeal as number one for me. And when you run as many cows as we do, because between the, 
our families, there's probably 1,100 cows. We don't have time to utter quality is very important. We ain't going to try to get calves to suck. And fertility, if they don't breed, they don't make you no money. And then I guess I always say there's three three or four basic things you need. You need feet, fertility, good udders, and something with a decent disposition. And if you do them, I think that you'll stay in business. But we've chased too many extremes. And the hardest thing to do is with any time you get one extreme, you give up on something else. And when you do that, then I don't care if it's infertility or, you know, the highest performance cattle sometimes don't make the best cows. So you just try to stay in the middle and it's always worked. So, Bud, I've got a question off of that. Um, you know, you just painted the picture of how the the genesis of Copal Farms and you guys were a dairy and then it's a 4-H project that just grew into 1,100 cows. Was there a moment when you said, this is the only kind of cow we're going to tolerate? Or was it that experience you drew from, uh, your father drew from running a dairy where he said, these are the traits we want to manage? Or, or did it just kind of happen? I'd say it more just happened, trial and error more so you know you buy something and it looks you know you buy it and i being a second generation actually my grandfather actually brought the was the first one raising beef cattle and that you know you you start figuring out okay you bought a bull and he might look really good or have these good numbers but all of a sudden the udders are terrible you know and the next one are you know and now i'm not saying everything's perfect here because i mean we're always calling still today because you try something and and something always shows up, but I think if you just, I think as time grew on, you just say, okay, you know, when you go find a herd bull, you want to see how many calves she's had, or, you know, it's easy to buy something out of our first calf after that isn't proven, and she might be good, but she might be one of them that's a high-performing female, never really, not might not be fertile, and do you want to put that into your cow herd and get a generation of cattle, and all of a sudden they don't breed, and that's, that's the biggest part is just having herds that are out there with raise them like we do, I guess, and find something that's similar in the environment we have and still be productive. But I know that uh, I've had the privilege of, of touring your operation many times. I mean, you, you essentially run those cattle just like the commercial producers in your area. There's not a whole lot of special treatment going on there. And, and you, you actually service a pretty wide and varied customer base there you know you sell bulls up to the short grass country there in in western south dakota uh you go south of you and a lot of your customers are in corn country how do you balance that genetically i guess with anything i think if you stay in the middle and that's where ai does help us somewhat you know anytime i go buy a bull i always make sure it's a maternal bull but i might ai some cows for terminal bulls, because some of these, or if you go east of us, corn country, they want bigger cattle. They got more feed sources and stuff, so they need, they can take a higher performance calf. But for me, as just the way we run them, I mean, as far as commercial cattle, I'd say we probably run them maybe even tougher than commercial cattle sometimes. I mean, right now, I'm even mixing straw in with my feed, just trying to stretch it because we're short of feed. But the feed source sometimes dictates what kind of cattle you have, and we're right on the edge. You know, we're not into corn country and big grain country, so we're we're lucky to be right in the middle so we can kind of touch both sides. But the only way we can kind of touch the going east is we try to AI them type of cattle because I don't know if we can sustain them big cattle the way we do it and have them breed. Sure thing, sure thing. You're, you're predominantly geared towards uh, producing cattle for the commercial 
operations. I, and I, I've come to know you over the years. I mean, that any conversation that we've had always circles back to uh, your servicing commercial producers. But with that being said, with that being said, I mean, you, you've certainly churned out your fair share of uh, pretty significant AI sires. And, and perhaps the first one that, you know, made everyone kind of look up and say, who in the heck is this Bud Copel was the identity bull. Tell us how that bull came to be. And, and uh, for those of our listeners that don't know the story, perhaps tell him uh, or tell us how the bull sold and uh, where he went and, and kind of his legacy since then. Okay. Actually, my dad went to Sitsa sale when actually when Upward sold and he come back and thought he was a good bull, but thought he had maybe a little more, too much set. And he said, oh, he's, my dad always liked a little more moderate cattle and said he was too big. So for two years, I kind of watched. And the upward cattle were high-performance cattle. But I had a destination cow that was really good and really maternal. And then I actually ended up breeding her to, after a couple of years because she was, she's moderate. And she's actually, she's still alive. She's 17 years old. Sold her to Whitestone when she was 10, but she's very productive cow, very fertile. And I bred her, and I was lucky enough to have Eldon Krebs come by that year and seen the calf. And and I have to kind of always kind of chuckle because there was another stud here that seen the bull, and him and that other guy from that stud were talking one day, and he said, "I don't care if you have another upward son or not. When you see a bull that good, you buy the bull." Eldon told the other guy. So. It's kind of always. I always think of that in the back of my head. I'm actually looking at a son out of a bull that I use already quite a bit, but there's another son out there that's one. And if it's better, I guess you go get the better one. Sure. But after he bought it, I was very lucky that he bought it. And after that, it was just, you know, and actually, even Eldon said, you know, when them calves are weaning, he said, you know, I don't know if there's enough gas, but after weaning time, they kicked another gear. And, and that's kind of the way that the whole cow progresses she's not prop she was a low birth weight cow and the calves actually at weaning time or so so just right in the middle or about average but boy they had another gear after you weaned them the thing that's really been shocking is the productivity of them cows i mean they will milk down and just they always come in with the biggest calves yeah and they breed back and they're very fertile yeah that's yeah. the amazing thing is the fertility on them no he's, he's a bull that's going to stand the test of time for sure and just so our audience knows, uh, so that's the the prologue or the early chapters of identity. And Corbin, Corbin actually helped write some of the final chapters of identity. And Corbin, uh, Corbin, tell us how you came to own identity and and what that bull's done for you. So as it as it turned out, Krebs had their their big cow dispersal, which which I think um, largely. And I may be wrong on this, but it was it was for Elton to kind of downsize. I don't think he's ever I don't think he's out of the business, but I think that was his way of downsizing and kind of letting the kids take over. And so he sold a lot of his cows and he had some herd sires in the back of that book. And actually, as it worked out, uh, Kramer's Apollo actually sold before identity in that sale. And I was interested in that bull as well. And I, I got outbid by a guy named Bud Copel on the Apollo bull. And so I was like, well, you know, identity, he's, he was, he was over seven at the time, but I was like, man, you're talking about a bull that's already left the legacy. And I just really thought it was an opportunity to, to kind of further on that legacy. And so he came to Southeast Oklahoma and on his trailer ride down here, he 
popped his foot on the trailer, did something and had broke a bone in the, in the bottom of his, uh, I guess kind of right down there in a horse, it would be their coffin bone. I don't know what it would be in a bull, but it was right there in between his hairline and his hoof hoof line. So, so he breaks that bone and, and, uh, he was what, seven or eight then and lived to be 13 or 12 and a half and, uh, bred cow bred 30 cows a season for four more years with that, with that foot like that. And <laughs> you want to talk about a bull that just, uh, man, the day, the day he passed on, it was, it was kind of a somber day, but, uh, I actually had the chance to, uh, Bud decided he wanted to get him mounted. And so, uh, we got him mounted and we took him up to Bud and, and he's at his, fre- he's back home. He's at his forever resting place <laughs> there. Yeah. That's, that's a cool story. And, uh, but Bud, so when Corbin, left your place. I called him and I said, uh, I said, where is identity? And he said, well, he's hanging in the cell barn, which really shocked me. I, I thought that bull would move into your den. It actually might. I think I'm going to bring it over here now. I was telling my wife, but I don't know if she's quite in yet. Um, might take a little <laughs> more persuading, persuading a little bit, but right now we got it in the, actually in the cafe part of the sale bar, not in the other part, because we didn't want to get too dusty and stuff. But I think we are going to bring it over here and put it up here. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, we want to see a picture when you when you move him. But uh, so, Bud, how fun was it to hang him? (laughs) Yeah, it was a little more work than I thought. (laughs) You might you might want to go to the hardware store and get a stud finder before you put that thing up in Bernie's living room, though. I don't think she'd tolerate that many holes in the wall, Bud. Well, that was Corbin's fault. (laughs) No, no, it was mine. So he was. I don't know if he's the first one that that put you on the map, but but there were many more, many more significant sires that came after him. And you know, as as you answer this next question, maybe you can you can talk about a few of those. But you know, your program's pretty interesting because you are not afraid to use your own sires. You know, I talk to you every every year right before breeding season, and uh, it seems like you've always got two or three new sires that, that you raise that you're using back in the herd. Maybe tell us about that philosophy and what some of those sires have been that, that have made a huge contribution to your program. I think that's probably what's progressed me the fastest is going back and using my own sires because like many of these sires, you really don't know how they're going to breed or what the cow their is like or what their feet or udders are like. And I think everybody's got some leak cows in their herd that can step up. And and by doing that, I mean, I don't like the bull that it, the Atlas bull or the Titan bull. And one thing when I use a bull, if I'm using it myself, I know I'm never going to get burned. So many of these bulls you'll use, and especially the bulls that are sometimes big numbers and the hottest bulls, you know, everybody thinks they got to use the new and hottest thing. I'm actually sometimes going back and using the more proven bulls just to try to make good females. I think that's where the Angus was probably, we had what was considered the greatest maternal herd and we've chased them. And I mean, we can compete on the growth side of it better than anybody anymore. But the problem is we don't have the good longevity females that can come in with a calf and be bred every year, nice uttered. And the foot structure, everybody said we've had foot problems for since it started. We might have, but I've never seen the foot problems like I've seen in the last 10 years. Maybe we are being a little more observant to it. But, I mean, when I was little, I'd never seen what we've got going on probably now in the breed. And I know we're all trying, and it's just 
kind of almost disgusting how we can't seem to get a handle on it. Why do you think that is, bud? Why now, not before? Well, we uh, here's a couple of things. I think the cattle, we definitely have more performance than we did and everything grows faster. Maybe the foot can't withstand that growth that we have right now. It's, the weight's getting too heavy too fast. That's part of it, I think. But I also think that the cattle that in the old days, if you'd had a bull with a bad feet or whatever, you would have you'd have just cut his head off. Now, if he's got good numbers and and he's got some marketability, it doesn't seem to matter. Everybody's chasing them extreme numbered cattle, and I think they'll do whatever it takes to try to get that great numbered one. And I think, and I don't know who you blame for it. I think we're all to blame. I mean, the studs sell the semen; they go pick up the bull because it's hot, and we the people go use it because it's got the great numbers. So it's kind of an endless circle. But I think we have to start being a little more stringent on what we're doing, I think. I, I would agree, bud. And you, you know what's what's cool about your program as you go there and you sort through some of these cows, that, that great longevity that you, you mentioned earlier, and you were referencing Identities Dam, Erica 605. And then, uh, you know, and, and I'll give myself a shameless plug here. I own a bull with you, uh, the Copel's B&B Pathfinder. And, and there's his dam. She's the fifth consecutive pathfinder in that pedigree and uh she's what 10 years old and uh, still going strong yeah and and that one thing about that cow she's been very productive and the fertility on that cow is unmatchable i mean you could flush her and she'd still be one of the first ones you could get to calf back right back up um the grandmother the great grandmother and actually the old cow originated was a pathfinder from the seventh generation back was a Pathfinder I bought from Bonview Farms when they were having a dispersal. And then that's how I originated with that old Blackbird Progress cow family, and they've been very productive. And there was one in there, actually it would have been seven or eight in a row, but there was one in there that when she had her third calf, um, got hurt and ended up having to sell her. But other, they were very productive cow family. Yeah. And and for me to get a Pathfinder here is getting extremely hard. And what, what's even tougher is you take Path, like 3015, the Progress cow, she's been a Pathfinder. Even as you're flushing her, she maintained it. And that's kind of hard to do. And, and my, I don't have many Pathfinders here because I'll be honest, my top 70 cows, they go in one pasture. That's their contemporary group. The ones that got 70 bull calves, there ain't some other little ones to mix in and make these numbers look good. My first and second calvers ain't contemporary with my old cows. So there's never really a bunch of manipulated numbers. So if I have 10 Pathfinder cows a year, that's about it. When I started out and I was putting everything together years ago, we used to have a lot of Pathfinders, but as you tighten your contemporaries up, I think you kind of, it really sorts them better for you and you don't have the manipulated numbers. Indeed. Indeed. You know what I think gets lost a little bit on your program, and but we're seeing a resurgence, uh, kind of a re-identification of it. Is I mean, your your program is built from cow families. On the surface, you know, we see all the sires that that have come out of your program that you use back in there. That's what jumps out at you. But uh, you know, you're you're seeing the Ericas just resurface time after time after time. And then uh, the Blackbird progress, you know, I I know that in a couple of years, your herd is uh, going to be just full of those daughters. What are some of the other cow families that, that you've built from that have kind of withstood the test of time? All the, I know we had a, the pure pride cow, cow family, which was initiated when um, Carol caught, 
Ken Carl was in business, and that's probably before your guys' time. We had a lot of them, and then we originated a few cows from Ankeny's. Actually, when I went to basic training, my dad bought me my first eight cows. When I was in basic training, I took the money and bought eight heifers and come back. And and then actually for the feed costs, I was giving him a share of the calves because he was taking care of them and stuff. And he actually used a couple bulls out of the first ones. And, and that's how I got started. I know everybody, when they, for my graduation money, actually I started kind of with the hog business and I only had about eight cows when I got married and I worked uptown doing construction work for three or four years and then running a sprayer for a co-op. And then after I was running sows, I'd have a hundred sows and then I'd get up in the morning, turn sows out, go to work, come back, turn sows out. And I ran about a hundred sows and then I had a few small cows, cow herd or whatever. And then in about six years, then I slowly built up and I was big enough to where I could sustain a living doing it. But that's how I originally got started. So, Bud, did you like the pigs or, or was it just a means to an end sort of deal? Because I can't, oh man, we've got, a, we've had a pig and that, I had one and it was miserable. I like them when they're little, but boy, I'll tell you what, if you want to find somebody, how, and I don't swear very much, I try to keep it under, <laughs> but when we sorted hogs, that bring out the worst. Yeah, I can remember a few times my wife would go walk to the house and she'd just say, you're doing it yourself because sorting hogs was always a challenge. <laughs> i'm sure it was i'm sure it was well but let's let's talk about your bull sale for a moment so you had a great sale this year that in fact i mean you've been having a great sale for a number of years but you 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 end up sending bulls all over the country uh up into canada or your reach is really expanded and uh what's what's your secret I don't know if there's any secret. Get lucky <laughs> once in a while. I don't know. No, I think it's just, of course, my dad has made some connections over the years. And one thing, I was just doing a little study in here a few years back, and I, I noticed every bull I sold ended up always better than, and I don't know if it's still true today as the last few years, but every bull I had sold before always ended up better than when I sold him as EPDs. Hmm. Which is very rare, but because so many of these bulls that are first calf heifers, and that's that's the manipulation of first calf heifers getting the extra hundred pounds or whatever they got. I think by contemporary, I and mean, I think bulls always proved out better than what they were when the day you sold them. I think that's always a big plus. You know, you buy bulls and you hope that they progress your herd forward. And usually, when you you know you stamp bull you really believe in and you stamp stand behind him or whatever it seems like it it better turn out and that's what's hard is you sometimes don't want to commit too early and but you, i was never afraid to go like every year if i'm going to use a bull i got to use 30 40 straws or i don't use it because i don't know if you really ever get a true test unless you can see a lot of progeny out of them yeah absolutely no i i agree with you there bud as i stated earlier i've had the privilege of being at your sale certainly corbin just went to your last sale and it's pretty remarkable uh, when you when you get out into those pens and you see all those customers just grinding away, and they they look at every bull and uh, they scrutinize them probably harder than than anyone in the business, and uh, it's a real testament to the program that you built there. This episode is sponsored in part by Shady Brook Angus Farm. Vince, you have a special event coming up. Tell us about it. Yes, David, our annual production sale is coming up on April the 8th at 5 p.m. 
this year just happens to be our 50 year anniversary. Wow. So we're pretty excited. Um, the, the sale will be held in Leoma, Tennessee. Yeah, right there at the farm. Yep. That's super. So the Shady Brook Angus program, uh, one of the most storied in the Angus breed. What are you going to be offering in this event? Well, this year for the first time, we'll have some ET calves. I usually hold on to all those. We'll have some fall splits. We'll have some spring pears. We'll have some hurt sour prospects. We'll have red heifers. We'll have open heifers. A little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a nice, uh, a nice diverse offering, a little bit for everyone. And uh, you surely have some features that you're really proud of. Tell us about a couple of those. We do. We have a nice renowned daughter from the Madam Pride family. We have a nice Bismarck from the Elba family. So that's just a couple of them. We'll have several. I can tell our listeners, I mean, the Shady Brook Angus program is synonymous with the Angus breed's greatest families. You look back over the history of the breed and and many of the great cows have called Shady Brook home. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, digging into this offering. For those that cannot be there on sale day, uh, do you have an online bidding platform? We do, CCI Live. So if you can't be here with Easter on there, come early, look at the cows, bid online, or we'd love to have you sale day. Yeah, and folks, don't hesitate to reach out to Vince. Vince will tell you the unvarnished truth about uh, each and every one of these cattle. In fact, Vince, I know that uh, you guys put these cattle through a very rigorous pre-sale checklist. Tell us a little bit about that. We try to nip any problems in the bud, cut it off the pass. So we, every animal we run through the chute, palpated. If they're supposed to be pregnant, great. Make sure they're still pregnant. If they're supposed to be open because they had a new calf, make sure there wasn't some issue calving that we couldn't see. If it's an open heifer, make sure she's got all of her ovaries and, and issues like that can be cut off. Bulls, mm -hmm. brown seedness, uh, breeding soundness exams, yonis, BVD, all that. Man, that's incredible. That's kind of a one of a kind to my knowledge. That's as thorough as it gets. For those out there that want a little more information, how can they find that? They can follow us on social media. We'll have everything as we get it online. They can go to shadybrookangusfarm.com or they can call me. Feel free to call me. Don't hesitate. Yeah, I, I know your phone number will be uh, right there in the cell book, and, and I look forward to seeing that cell book. And uh, until then, folks, check out Shady Brook Angus Farm, and we look forward to seeing you on April the 8th in Leoma, Tennessee. Now back to the show. So I, I want to shift gears. Uh, hopefully we didn't leave anything uncovered here, but uh, in our next segment, as kind of a service to some of our listeners that are thinking about having sales, and this is actually a topic that was brought up in social media by uh, Tanya Belsham uh, from up in Canada. Uh, Tanya is a good friend of the underground, and, and she brought this topic up, and I thought it was interesting, and and uh, we've just been unable to get the timing right, but I thought with Bud in here, Bud's coming right off his cell, we could talk about some of this. And basically the topic is cell expense. Basically, there are so many expenses that, that go into putting on a, a production sale. And, and at some point we have to get our arms around that and uh, control some of those expenses. Otherwise you're, you're doing this for nothing. Bud, maybe walk us through some of this. You know, obviously, obviously, if you're selling registered Angus bulls, you got to have an AI certificate. You got to have a registration paper. But beyond that, uh, let's talk about feed. You know, so we've got these bulls. Uh, 
right off of weaning, we're going to get them ready for a sale. What's your philosophy on feeding these bulls? Um, we'd start them pretty slow right after we wean them. Actually, my dad was too slow. He'd always lose too much time for about the first three weeks. He'd just give them hay. And, you know, he always said, grow them slow. And, but as we know today, you can't do that. Um, so we get them on a little bit of grain at first. We probably never, ever exceed a 44 mega cal. And that would be the high ration as far as a mega cal for us. One bad thing here is we have two different places that we feed. Mines are in little smaller lots. I'm trying to work it so I can get bigger lots and more exercise. Where my son Derek's got a bigger lot, and we can feed the same ration, but my bulls always be flesher here because of just the size of the lot. So you got to be very careful not to overdo them. And we only creep feed usually maybe two weeks before we wean only bull calves, but this year we only did it a week just because it was so dry. But actually, when we turn in our data, we still put down creep feed, even though they're only creep fed one week. Um, but that's how we do it. And then after we get them on feed or whatever, and all we do is it's a silage, earlage, grass, alfalfa mix, um, and then one pound of protein, a little bit of mineral. There's, it's no hocus pocus mash ration or whatever, but we just try to slowly get them there and... They'll never be the heaviest bulls around, but they're probably they're in plenty good enough shape to find differences with. Yeah, and that's that's the one thing that was striking to me. I, I go on that little Dakota trip every year, and and I end up looking at a ton of bulls, and uh, just the differences in uh, flesh that the bulls carry from ranch to ranch is is pretty astounding. <laughs> I've known Bud for he's close to thirty years, and every year Bud says, "Oh, my bulls are." My bulls are too light. My bulls are uh, thin. <laughs> and I, I I will tell you, I mean, every time I go in there, the bulls are, I think, just right. You know, they've been fed enough to express these genetic differences, but never overfed and, and never burned up. And that's, yeah, again, Bud has an attention to detail that's, that's second to none in that regard. Well, with that being said, I mean, I mean, right now, these feed costs are through the roof. And I know you grow a lot of your own feedstuffs there. Have you put a pencil to it? And and uh, what what's that looking like this year for your, you know, daily feed costs for a bull? Well, right now, I mean, if, I don't know if we can get it done for three dollars a day anymore. And the bedding is even that's a cost nobody ever thinks about either. I said every day we drop four round bales of corn stalks when it's real cold out. So you're talking a buck ahead just a, a day almost just in bedding when it's cold. So that's something the guy doesn't realize. It's just a hidden cost that you always have. And, and then, of course, when you got bed them, you got to always clean it all up again. So then you got to, for a week, you'll be hauling manure again. So there's a lot of little hidden costs that you don't see doing that. I guess the feed cost is, it's, it's huge. I, I mean, for a commercial man, and that's why I still say, you know, Going through the tough, cold part of the winter, this winter especially, our feed cost has been tr tremendous. The calf feeder calf price has to be good for what it's costing us to feed these cows. It does. It does. And, you know, um, we develop a lot of our bulls here on the ranch, but uh, uh, we've got a set of spring ETs that, that we uh, send to another location to be fed. And, uh, and they're feeding through the middle of winter. And I just looked before we came on the air here. I mean, my cost... And that that includes bedding and and yardage, but uh, I mean we're three fifty a day 
you know, and, and uh, we'll have a period where it'll be a little bit higher, but it'll average out to about 350 a day. And I think the, the best advice we can give a lot of our listeners, and I know Bud follows this advice, is you look at those bulls every day. If, if you've got a bull that's not making it, you know, you're 100% sure that bull's not going to make the sale. Or even if you're 70% sure, you know, slip a band on him, get him out of there. Because he's just eating up your profit. And and I know you do that, bud. And uh, and we do it every day here. I mean, if I see something that even looks at me cross-eyed, he's gone. You're talking 350 a day. That's, uh, man, that adds up to a lot of money in a week's time or even a month's time. So you guys are really hands-on. Uh, I know a lot of us uh, will hire, you know, some of the prep work done by by outsiders, uh, you know, the clipping work, the pictures, the video, but you guys do it all yourself, right? Yeah, we usually hire the video done, but we ended up with the weather this year. We even did half of our own video and we're tight. That seems yeah. like we're kind of <laughs> scavengers over here. <laughs> no, I've been clipping since I was 12 years old. I mean, my dad used the first time we hired a guy, his name was Don Wick, and I was, I think, in about fourth grade. I did the head and bellies, and he would torch them. That was our yeah. first bull sale about then. And since then, I mean, all through high school and everything, and I'm still the the head and the neck and the tail and the sheath guy. And then my boys, one or the two, there'll be two boys usually do it. And we can probably get about 70 head done a day clipping. And we start about 9 o'clock and quit at 4. So in about, you know, 6, 7 hours, we can do about 10, 12 bulls an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, here, here a few years ago, I actually worked with you a little bit on, uh, uh, getting some pictures for your bull sale. And, uh, I tell you what, Bud is quite an accomplished photographer. Now you, you did a great job this year on your, your bull pictures. Well, they're still not good enough, but like I said, I'm tight. There is, I mean, you've taught me a lot, but there's still a lot more to learn. I know, but you told me something that always sticks in my head. You said, take that picture like your farm depends on it. And I, and that, that always kind of sticks in my head. And I always try to do a little better job because it is, you're trying to get them there. But there is one thing that bothers me is when I go to places with these, some pictures that are, and I get there and I can't even find the cattle that even resemble them. That's, that's a little harder to swallow for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you do a great job with your photos, but I, I will say, you know, when I go there, I mean, the bull actually looks better than his photo. It's not the inverse in which we've been yeah. become accustomed to. But but that creates quite a bit of savings there by you guys doing all that work yourselves. Uh, if you hire somebody to clip right now, it's thirty five to forty five bucks a head. It it all takes money. There's no doubt about it. And I said, you know, for our commercial guys, and and I know we all want to have the highest price sale we can, but. I have a. I know we we had a really good sale this year, and when I got done, I talked to the boys, and we said, "Boy, they they were happy. It was a good sale." And I said, "You know, maybe a little too good. Maybe we, you know, if the commercial guy don't make money, he ain't coming back." That's right. You know, and there's there there's a bottom line, or what they, they we've got to make it so it comes for full circle, so we all can make a little bit. You know, the problem is, and somebody sees you making money, I don't care if it's the newspaper guy or the feed guy or they all get a little big peak bigger piece of the pie and and it's tough on the commercial guy but you know bud it uh we haven't touched on this and it doesn't fit with sale expense but it fits with marketing i think uh you've tackled a really unique way to try to add value to your customers and 
And if I disagree with David on anything, when he says that I'd call you a master breeder, you're confident in your program, but you're one of the more humble friends that I have and probably don't underscore the talents of your family and yourself enough. But your son is an incredible auctioneer. He's very talented. And um, so what is the cost and benefit? Maybe we can tie it in that way with the female sale you all are offering to your customers that use Copal Genetics. It's it's really good on the heifer side, the, the calving these bulls, and, and it shines good. But with anything, as we start, we got to keep making it better. You know, we first made it so they had to be bred to our bulls, and eventually went them out to make it so they become they're out of our bulls and all our breeding. And um, it's really getting hard to find really good Angus heifers. I mean, we can find Angus heifers that are terminal, but utter quality and, and docility. And the functional Angus is really getting harder to find all the time. We've made them into these plow horses or whatever. And, and I mean, we got the gas there. There's no doubt about it, but I don't know if we need I just like to be balanced, and and I think that's the hardest thing for the the commercial guy to find. And we we're finding some of the guys here with tax purposes. They started buying heifers years ago, and they said, "Man, them are the heifers look good when I bought them, but boy, they sure didn't hold up like girls." And and that's what's happening with these higher maintenance cattle, and that's why they they can't adapt to this environment where we have to feed, 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 and they can't maintain themselves. And I I think we have to just stay focused on raising good cattle. And by doing that, I think that's been good for our, we're trying to help our customers, the ones that buy good, good bulls and maternal bulls, help remarket them heifers. And it's been really good for us as far as that goes. And then they come back and kind of patronize us back on, on buying bulls. And it, it kind of works hand in hand. The problem is like this year, um, the calving these bulls, we were, we were really short. We actually had orders for maybe 20, 25 bulls that we didn't get filled when the sale was over just because we were short of calving these bulls. How long have you been hosting that commercial bread heifer sale? It's four years. And I, here's, here's the other side of it. You know, now everybody, it's been really successful for us and now everybody wants to be in on it. And, you know, we had some customers with the second and third calvers that were our program for years and they did really good on it. And people see, and we're probably getting, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars average more than the commercial guy out there by the good ones. But um, now everybody wants to be in it. And I don't know how you fit that demand of that many people want to raise heifers now. And how many can we market and get sold? You know, that's going to be the, the other side of it. it. It look it's good now, but there's also problems coming up ahead, too. So and you you hold that what first part of December every year? Yeah, first part of December. And we do that at Yankton as stockman's there at the and that's where Dan works in that sale barn and part owner of it. And it and it works really good. I mean, it's nice when you can have a, it's kind of a centralized location with big facilities and stuff to come in and then you can have your vet. And and we make some criteria. They gotta be ultrasounded. They gotta be we go through and if there's any high headed ones, we don't take them. And we're pretty critical on what they do. They have to be AI to our bulls and cleaned up with our bulls, one or the other, you know. So we do have some stipulations to be in on it. And so that it helps on the calving side of it. But I think the other part that's probably be interesting is the guys we thought about even starting where we do the heifer calves. That's the hard thing to find is the really good heifer calves in the fall. There's guys looking all over for good heifer calves, but they got to be the right kind. Yeah, that's, that's going to be even more so this year as the Northern Plains have gotten the much needed moisture. I mean, these... These uh, really top flight Angus based 
uh, replacement quality heifers, they are going to bring a premium this fall. And how many head did you put through the sale last year? I think we had almost 700 that we sold, 700 heifers. And we tried to limit it to, uh, you know, 40, 50 per person because there's so many guys that, you know, and I don't know, that's just because we got so many and we don't want to grow it too fast because if you have, let if we flood the market right away, some of them guys, I mean, if we can't make them a profit, we don't want to do it. And that's, that's what we see coming on is just how many can you sell in one day and have buyers for it. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. You bet. But that's a great service that you offer your bull customers. That is fantastic. Kind of circling back to the expenses. So we kind of touched on feed and bedding, clipping pictures and videos. And and then you've got the just real basic expenses that you can't get around uh, semen test. And then catalog. I know that you guys stepped up your game this year. Uh, really nice catalog that you put out. Do you think that made a difference? Yeah, I think it. we kind of tried to focus a little more on, on the female side, but very, very appreciative of the person that put it together. It was Stroman did it for us, and I think she also does yours, if I'm not mistaken, and Joe's, but such an easy person to work with. What I really enjoyed about it is when I do all my, I'm outside all day, and then when you come in in the evening and she's got a problem, we can sit and fix it. Um, you don't I don't have to waste time during the day. So it was, she was really accommodating. We were very grateful what she did. Well, that that's, uh, you know, I, I've often said, I, I think that's the most important marketing piece you can have. And, and I probably jumped ahead a little bit. I want to talk about advertising a little. I look at the catalog as, as part of my advertising budget. You know, how much advertising do you do, bud? How far do you uh, reach out? you know, outside of your region, maybe give us some insight there. Um, we What we do is we take our last five years of our bull customers and they all get a catalog every year. Or, or if we have a female sale, we'll do the same for three years or whatever. But, and then we actually do certain zip codes. We actually send the catalog to the association and then have them do certain zip codes for us that we want or whatever in the state. And, but I think we only mail out about 1100 catalogs or whatever, but um, try to stay as close to home as we can. And then the rest is all on request, mm-hmm. but that's how, that's how we do it is just, but the problem is with the, even with the association, I said, we're still getting catalogs back with their zip code. And I know we've gotten 30 some catalogs back that we sent out with their zip code and these addresses. And I mean, you got five, $5 a piece probably in them and then you get the shipping or whatever. And then you get them back and you start adding it up. That's some money that was, not well spent. Yeah, it, uh, it, it can pretty pretty well take a big bite out of your profit margins. But so uh, advertising, you know, print advertising, radio advertising. What what do you implement there? We're I think we're very lucky to have a really good radio station around us. It's um, five seven zero WNX, and then we have a KMIT out of Mitchell. We use a couple of radio stations, and actually Dan cuts the ads for them, and he does that, and he does a really good job. I think that's probably our biggest bang for our buck. We do do some paper advertising, just enough to get some ringmen, and it's probably all we do because social media is becoming so big. And if everybody's like me, when you come in, I I don't even hardly sit and read a paper anymore. I think for me, it'd be a waste of time for anybody to send me probably social media and then the radio is our biggest ones. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's I know Joe and I've talked quite a bit about it, and, and that's kind of how – we see it as well. 
that's what I'm struggling with. You know, I've been having sales for years and years, but uh, when we look at that advertising budget, getting a bang for our buck there, and then so often uh, the ring staff that, that comes and takes bids at the sale, they're tied to those publications. You know, so you need those folks there. You feel compelled to spend money to advertise in their, their publication, but it's kind of questionable how effective that advertising is. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question. If it wasn't for the ringmen and stuff, I don't know if we do much publication anymore because, you know, 70 or 80% of ours is all repeat customers anyhow. And then it's a lot of times word of mouth and just, I still, it's, I know another expense we'll say is, you know, consultants, I, I don't want to jump the gun, but if you have a good consultant and, and that's why you almost need to hire one and I, I mean, I'm very appreciative of the guy I got, and I guess I met him at your sale, that Dave Mullins, but he's a guy that is low-keyed, honest, doesn't not pushy, but I could call you and tell you that I got a good bull, and you'd say, oh, yeah, right. Anybody can call me and tell me it's a good bull, and I mean, it might be a good bull, but when you hear it from an outside party that's very trustworthy, I think it has some clout. And I guess I think probably that consultant and, and somebody you really trust and want to work with is worth the money. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it, and it's a direct representation of your program. And you want to have the right person in there to do that if, if you choose to go that route. But perhaps and I, I know you've worked with a wide variety of cell managers, consultants over the years, and, and we're not going to name them by name, but. What are some of the pitfalls that, uh, you know, Corbin's getting ready to have his first sale this fall. What advice could you give him on finding the right person? Uh, and then number two, you know, what kind of instruction do you give that person? You know, this is my list of expectations. Give us some insight there. Okay. When I started a couple of years ago with Dave, I told him, I know this is going to be a and you ain't going to do it in a year or two, but then over time, I would, I would just want him, to, you want your consultant to know your cows and your cow herd and, and what your program is, because I'm not here to sell one bull. I'm here to, we're here to sell 200 bulls or whatever. And that's our program is this is the kind of cattle we raise. And I think if you, he has that philosophy of not just, you got to know what, what kind of cow families it out of. And, and I think that's very important because Everybody's got some good-looking bulls, but is it a one-hit wonder, or is, can she do it every time? And by having a good consultant that knows your program and knows the cows that they're out of and, and what they're coming from, I think he can kind of back it up and people realize, you know, there's some substance behind this bull or whatever. It ain't just a one-hit wonder. Or we just chasing this number thing, and 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 that's something else that it doesn't pertain to sale consultants. But you know, like us, we if a cow's open, she's gone. She, she don't stay around. That's just, or she gets an embryo one or the other. I mean, because the consultant's kind of on the same kind of purpose. I mean, I want him to know confident that we stand behind our product. And, and when he tells it to somebody, it's going to perform like it's supposed to. Right. It's not, we can't just rely on the consultant to do it all. He also has to rely on us to hold up our end of it. And wouldn't you say, Bud, that you're like all those inside cover people, what I'm getting from your discussion is be intentional in those selections, right? Have in your mind the goal that you want those people to achieve. And then if that economic value is there and and whether we like it or not, there are a lot of times 
they are our organization that day, right? They are our business because mm-hmm. they're that first line of com- uh, communication when someone picks up your book. So you guys, you do everything. You clip them, you torch them, you tag them, you freeze brand them, you feed them. You're going to be doggone intentional with the money you spent on sale management and on consultants and make sure that that it's clear what their expectations are, correct? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's it goes hand in hand. Find that guy that's going to work and believe in your program, and then you you know, and trust that he's believing in yours. And I think it's not something that's done overnight. It just takes time. And I'll add the reason I brought that up is while David was asking you some questions, we're not all blessed to have a sale like Bud Copel has. But if I did some quick and dirty math, if you hired a sale management team to manage your sale, which is lay out the catalog, which is pin bulls, which is make a sale order. 85,000 you'd wrote a check for, bud. <laughs> That's a heck of an employee for 365 to get someone to do that job for the leading up to your sale. So I'm not saying that they aren't worth it. What I'm saying is while we're talking about sale expense in this segment of the podcast, if you're going to spend that 85,000, you need to make sure that it adds that much value to your operation. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And, 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 and so if, if it does at the same token, I don't care, even auctioneer expense, there's an expense we didn't hit. You know, there's a big chunk of money that goes out. You know, you got the papers, all this expense. So how much can we recoup for that commercial man? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's and they want to do business with you, but they're only going to do business until their pocket broke. You know, pretty soon there's nothing left for them. And and that's that's the part we can't miss. A lot of people have big families and they want the family to come back. I think it's really unique how you made those people had to bring value back to your operation. Everybody brings a different segment. Dan brings the auctioneering piece. Dan videoed the bulls, I think, or helped photo them. Um, I know that uh, Scott has his own ways to help on the operation, and so does Joe. I mean, is that something intentionally that you guys said, hey, you want a place on this operation, you got to bring enterprises and value back? Or was it just kind of out of necessity? Probably more of necessity, and and sometimes there's lectures. I say, hey... (laughs) You know, you, we got to do something here. We, I'm kind of a slave driver in a little way sometimes too. You know, I, I'm conservative because I come from the old school where you didn't have two nickels to rub together. You know, it's it came the hard way. You know, you worked uptown, you finally got where you're at, and we've been very blessed. I'm not saying we haven't, but they always say it takes one generation or two generations to lose with the one before you made it. And I think that's the scary part. A guy doesn't really, we don't want to be, get lax and just give up kind of because, and think it's all gravy because it's a job that you endlessly keep working at. And that's what scares me about the commercial industry. You know, we're lucky that the cap prices is good and they can pay some more. And I hope they make some money because everybody else wants a piece of their pie and the papers go up, the auctioneer goes up, everybody goes up in their prices. They all get a little bit more money. But it makes sure that commercial guy, because that's really the backbone of all these bull sales. You know, we sell one to a couple to the top end that makes, you know, to register breeders. And we need them too. But the commercial guy's there every year. That's the guy that has to make money. Indeed. On the sale expense, you know, when you start talking about the price of papers and things like that going up whenever the prices go up, just something that's worth noting. That once those things go up, even whenever the market comes back down, those prices don't come back down, just kind of like everything else. So keep that in mind whenever you're planning for a sale and everything, you know, what's really good right now 
Um, and when you think you've, you kind of, you know, we're turning a big profit. Well, your costs might not really be coming back down whenever the market eventually does. And we know that it will, cause it always does. Indeed. Um, so Corbin's getting ready for his first sale this year and, uh, he's going to go have it at a, a sale barn. So he's going to have that expense added on to his ledger, uh, renting that sale barn for the day and, and, uh, any labor that he needs, uh, he'll pay for that. And, I know Bud is he's got his own facility there that's dedicated to the sale and and a real nice set of pins. And but that's those are expenses that you have to consider. So we've got to keep that in mind. And then, you know, the the sale hospitality, you know, I, I think Bud did something different this year, correct? Yeah, this year we actually had our local, we always had the food local grocery store or whatever, a catering company here in our local town always catered. Well, they quit, went out of business. And we were real lucky that we use JNR feeds and there's Jack Sieben or whatever comes and he does has a truck with any cook cooks right on site. So he come and made some ribeye sandwiches or whatever and tremendous food and beans and cheesy potatoes. And he does an excellent job. So we we're very grateful. And that's one of the, we use their feed and a lot of these feed companies or banks. So they'll, if you work with them, they'll probably come and help you and give you a little bit of a break. Yeah, no, that's that's good advice there. Are you looking to market your semen or embryos? Introducing GeneBrokers.com, the industry's first true breeder-to-breeder online marketplace. Whether you're cleaning out your tank or selling semen on your special herd sire, GeneBrokers.com provides a platform to showcase your genetics to breeders from around the globe. Our intuitive portal allows you to create listings, monitor inventory levels, and customize your storefront. With GeneBrokers.com, there are no listing fees and a modest 10% transaction fee due at the time of sale. For those looking to purchase genetics online, GeneBrokers.com offers dynamic sorting functions to help you narrow your search to find exactly what you're looking for. Each transaction is fast, easy, and secure. All sales are backed by GeneBrokers Quality Guarantee Policy for smooth, hassle-free transactions. To make your next purchase or to begin marketing your genetics, visit GeneBrokers.com, where you'll find genetics at the speed of commerce. So I'm going to ask a, a goofy question now kind of lighten the, the mood here. So what what uh what is the worst sale mill you've ever had? And you don't have to say where it was, but what it was. How about you, bud? I don't know. I can eat anything but liver, so I've never had liver, so I can't <laughs> say I've really ever had a bad one. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> I might get some flack for this, but I've got I've got a nominee. Um it's during a <laughs> They pass it out to you while you're sitting there is all I know. But, oh, uh, come on, Corbin. <laughs> that's that's service. That's service. No, I I you know, I've been to a ton of sales. I listen, I'm kind of like Bud. I, I I don't turn down free food and all free food's pretty good, but uh, you know, you go to a lot of these sales and they can't keep up with the volume of people there and they're grilling hamburgers and boy, sometimes you can get basically a raw piece of meat between a bun yeah that's not real appetizing <laughs> can you guys imagine cooking for 200 people oh it's yeah oh, it's, it's stressful i can't imagine flipping that many burgers in time 
Oh, I know. The, the cool thing Bud mentioned though, about the feed company and the guy that has a passion for it, it kind of becomes like this community thing. And that's what ours is. There's a there's a group of men that's like, it's almost like an Elks Lodge. It's called Native Sons of the Golden West. It's all the old guys from around who've been together since high school and they love cooking. We donate them a bunch of money and they cook prime ribs all day. Well, our bull sale customers all know these people. And so they're coming in and visiting with the cook and then the cooks go out and they look at some bulls. And I don't know, I think... I think these sale atmospheres, it's hard to put a put a, a dollar figure on the atmosphere of community. And when you get people comfortable within that community, it doesn't have to be extravagant. It has to fit what your customer is. And I think that when we, you know, out here in California, everybody cooks tri-tip. And to half our listeners, you might even not know what a tri-tip is because they came out of Santa Maria. They used to be hamburger and people started barbecuing them. Uh, but anyways, we we ran a sharp pencil and said it wouldn't cost us that much more to cook prime rib. So we're a little bit different. We have fresh sliced prime rib for everybody. And I, I think um, if you were to ask me, I would say that's one thing sale day. Don't skimp on. Don't skimp on your meal. Take care of your people. But if I were to ask you, what's the one thing sale day, not sale day, you could pick your one thing you don't skimp on. What would it be? One thing I wouldn't skimp on. Well, you know, I skimp on pictures and I shouldn't. <laughs> so, so, so we'll throw that one out. I don't know about skimp on, but I think probably just keeping in touch with the customers you're around is probably more important than skimping on some. I think you're probably right. You know? I would agree. I would agree. David, you would you would you kind of say the same that your advertising budget, your food, your facilities all has to kind of match the customer and we don't you don't skimp or you don't go extravagant. You kind of just fit what your customer is. Yeah, I think I think so. Um that was something that we really, really grappled with here at Montana Ranch, uh, you know, for a number of years. Well, initially we were selling uh, down in Ramsey at a sale yard and, and that was really good for us. Um, and then we moved over to uh, Midland Bull Test. We rented their facility and their pens for a couple of days and had our sales. But we, we wanted folks to be able to come to the ranch because we're building, building, you know, everything that we do is about the cow here. And so we were, we were hauling bulls, selling them 400 miles away from home. Nobody got to see the cows. And, and so we wanted to bring it back home. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to find that, uh, that perfect spot in terms of you want to give the, the customers a nice experience, but you don't want to intimidate them. And, and we opted to uh, create a facility that was uh, warm and welcoming. And uh, we we actually wanted to make it an, an event for the family. You know, we want the rancher to come, but we want him to bring his spouse and his kids and, uh, you know, make it a, an event for those folks. And I, I think that's important. It, it, it all depends on, on what your target is. You know, do you want to just get the bull sold, move on? Or do you want those folks to say, hey, let's circle that date on the calendar every year. Let's load up uh, the spouse and the kids and, and go there. And, and we know that we're going to get a great meal, great hospitality, and, and see some good cattle. So I think it's a matter of finding your, what your comfort level is, what your zone is, and, and uh, tailoring it to, uh, to those customers. Absolutely. That's a good point, Joe. As the consumer, I think the best way to do that, and right now I'm just the consumer of, the, of these sales and kind of the, the buyer, but... I think the one thing that has to fit in is that sale book has to be able to grab someone's attention. I think that's something that uh, 
you can't take it for granted because because that's your that's a lot of times that's your first impression on somebody is they open the front cover of that of that sale book and they see something that's just thrown together and uh, they might just throw it in the trash or they might not be intrigued put something together that you're proud of you know and if you're proud of it then then I feel like uh, the potential customer will notice notice that and you'll have a you'll have you know that's step one if you can't get past step one you can't make the step two so. Right. Not, I want to expand on that for a moment. And, and I know this is supposed to be an interview with Bud, but, but we're kind of on a neat subject here. I think Joe does a fantastic job because he tells the story of his program through his sale catalog. And, and you have to look at that catalog as uh, it is advertisement. But if you're just putting pedigrees and EPDs and pictures in there, it's not telling the story of your program. It's not uh, lending context to the bigger picture and what your breeding philosophy is. And, and, and Joe, give us a little insight in, in how you develop that throughout the year. Well, it came out of necessity, like a lot of things Bud saying, because honestly, guys, if you do a crappy sale catalog, it's still going to be one of your biggest expenses. And so what David was saying is, as maybe your most important messaging marketing piece, it's almost like a biography of our program that I send out. And we know that everyone that's going to get it in their hands is someone that's previously been interested in our program or expressed some sort of interest. And so I I don't really think about selling cattle anymore. Maybe that's wrong, but I, I don't think about it like, you know, I need to get this sold. I think about it more like I need to make sure that I link the right customers with the right cattle, with the right program so that we have sustained customer success. One of my very favorite quotes is, if you take care of the customers you have, you, you'll never have to get another one. And that is true. That is true. It doesn't seem that way when you've got one customer and three bulls to sell. But trust me, over time, they'll start to bring their friends and the word of mouth will spread like wildfire. And your retention, I feel like my retention of customers is always higher when I do it that way, as opposed to like Bud was talking about print advertising. I think it's still a piece. There's that uh, almost like a uh, a trifecta there of electronic, your own sale book and direct marketing pieces, and then as well as newspapers. And we've shifted to where we've we've upped our budget toward the direct mailing pieces as well. We do a great job of categorizing our own mailing list. And then we do a surgical, very precise job of prospecting new customers. And there's tools to do that. I think some of the biggest expenses where guys could cut a lot of fat out. You guys get the jokes with me and Bud's not on the group text and he's so busy and works so hard he wouldn't reply anyways. But you guys saw the stacks of catalogs I never even opened this year. And that's five to seven bucks a piece, not to mention postage all the way through. And I think when you look at something David does or I do, or maybe other people do, I think it's very easy or Bud's catalog this year to get intimidated and say, oh my goodness, that's so expensive. I could never afford that. Well, I'll tell you what you can't afford is a crappy catalog with a bad viewing experience. Um, You know, I, I think that we want to tell that story. We want it to be a meaningful piece on the coffee table. And that is one that I do not use the word skimp. I probably go a little bit extravagant, but not bells and whistles and extra frosting, making sure that the meat of that document really communicates the message of our program out to the consumers we're trying to hit. Yeah, well stated. So uh, I've got two other things I want to hit on quickly uh, as it pertains to sale expense, but I know Bud has an online presence uh, or an online bidding platform that he utilizes. Joe does the same. I do the same. And and what we saw during COVID, uh, that was a forcing function. 
because it it basically meant that uh, you know a lot of folks were afraid to travel. They were hesitant to gather into large groups, and a lot of the men and women out in commercial cattle country, you know, they had to adopt uh, this policy or, or uh, protocol of bidding online. And uh, I think it's opened up a a lot of opportunity for all of us. So, Bud, how long have you been having uh, online sales? About seven, eight years, and and it's it's a must for us just because of the where we're at and the weather. Even there's some years, even this year before the sale, you probably have forty guys come through two to three weeks before the sale. Look at the bulls, and they don't even show up at the sale. They'll just bid online. You know, it's it's kind of a safety net. So when if you do have that storm or some bad weather. I'm not saying if it's storm, you postpone it, but if it's that bad and you only go a couple of days, some of them still don't get dug out, but they can go in the house or have their wife sit in there and just bid on bulls from, and we'll sell all anywhere from probably 30 to 40 bulls a year on internet. So it's, it's, it's a must for us. It's a cost, but it's, it's a cost. We it's well worth the cost for us. I think it's got advertising potential too. It it broadcasts you out to to people. That's not a great word, is it? Broadcasts you, um, but it broadcasts it broadcasts you out to a wider swath of folks that you wouldn't have been exposed to before. I think uh, any recommendation I'd have is make sure that the carrier that you're using, you can have a great working relationship with. We've just recently this last year, two guys. Um, they've got data you can dive into that is unbelievable. Um, just buyer preferences, amount of clicks, amount of reach. Um, some of that data is really, really useful when you're trying to consider what our customer is going to want in terms of purchasing options in the future. And uh, I've had to figure out, I have repeat buyers on the internet that I make it a point to go deliver bulls to them, but they're perfectly okay having an internet relationship. Um, yeah. My people who are are boots on the ground and want to bid at the ranch, they they take up a little bit more time and they have a different kind of a relationship. And that's all fine. But I think as we navigate this, you know, ranchers and farmers having to do more with less all the time, Bud brings out a great point. Maybe they get their chores done. They can zip over it, look at cattle three weeks before your sale. And then without the intimidation and the comfort of their home, they can get done choring in the snow, come back, bid on some bulls, go back, do something else. I mean, it's just really a good, flexible tool. But you can't eat up a pile of money, guys. You can eat up a pile of money if you have the wrong carriers or if you don't use that tool to the best of its ability. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, the, the last expense that we really want to unwrap here is delivery. Here in the West, Bud's country on West, I don't know who started it, Bud, but uh, somebody started by uh, offering free delivery. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 kind of like uh, at this point you either deliver them for free or you're not going to be sending bulls anywhere, and that can that can really add up. I mean, it's incredible. And the hard part is that you know, like some guys want, and here's the hardest part for us: it's not just the the feed costs you have by keeping them, but you got one guy that could be 400 miles away. Well, he starts breeding April first. Well, his neighbor is right beside him, but he don't want his bull. So there you sit. But we've made a, and most of, most of them are understanding, and they're pretty good about it. But some guys, and they say, well, this guy won't deliver till this and this date. And it, and, and it makes it tough in you because you're trying to service them as good as you can. But yet, 
when you're driving and it's taking you $400 to get that bull, you know, three, 400 miles away, you'd sure like to take the one right beside him. So you don't have to make a trip. And, and, and so that's the hard part is when you start delivering, we just always say, you know, we're going to start delivering March 1st. And, um, because by April 1st, I mean, we'll, we'll let them, we'll leave them here until April 1st, but they got to come get them. Cause if we went by their place, it's hard to justify going back another, you know, it's one thing if it's close, the close ones here, when it's done, it's easy. We can go deliver them. And that's one good thing about the neighbors. But when you got one that's four or 500 miles away, you don't want to make two trips. No, no. And I'm, I'm faced with that here. We, we sell in the fall, we sell our bulls in the fall and Consequently, we offer a, a wintering option for some, and it gets difficult at times because, you know, we, we see ourselves delivering bulls a thousand miles from here in December, and then we go right back to the same area in the spring. Meanwhile, we're burning a lot of fuel, and a lot of time. Uh, so it's it's difficult, and it's it's a bit frustrating, especially here where Bud's located or where I'm located because you've got so many people on the road doing the exact same thing, going to the same areas, but it's your competition. You know, it's it's a shame we couldn't all work together and say, hey, neighbor, I know you sold uh, three bulls over here to central South Dakota. I've got six going there. Let's combine forces and get them there. But uh, I'll deliver your bulls for you, David. <laughs> no, I, I have delivered bulls for you, big guy. You have, you have, you did. You did, that's right. No, there's another sale expense, though, that we didn't talk about. And and when you're putting together your first sale, you know, discuss what you want to do for guarantees to your consumer. And um, it's not a huge expense sometimes, and then it is sometimes. And Bud, what do you guys do for guarantees? And and uh, don't have to dive into what you have to do for refund and bulls and credits and how many you have a year, but just acknowledge it. it really is an expense to the operation, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it is. But we've we've had a pretty good policy for all maybe ten years, and you know it kind of works for everybody. But um, what we do is we let's say if a bull brings eighty five hundred, we give them the salvage of the bull. So that the we put a salvage price on every bull at fifteen hundred. So if a bull brings eighty five hundred, then the bull it's at seven thousand because they got the salvage. That way they have responsibility to take care of them because some guys oh well they'll cover the whole thing. They don't care if he dies or not or um, so that's what we started doing years ago. And then after that, and this is only if bulls are over $3,000, we do this. If the bulls, I mean, we guarantee them breeders and, and stuff like that, but let's say a break, bull breaks his hip two weeks into breeding season. So you will take that 1500 off that, let's say if it's 8,500, so you're at seven and then we split it. You can either insure your half. And we'll stand behind half and you eat half. It's kind of like insurance for both. You know, we'll pay half the insurance policy or whatever you want to do. We actually, once it gets over ten or $12,000, we will probably end up buying our insurance half. And then you can have the right to buy yours or you can gamble on your half. But otherwise, some of these guys, you can't just, I mean, the sky's the limit for some of these. If you sell a bull for 50000 you know, it gets costly insuring these bulls. So, there's a limit. We actually are thinking about self-insuring our bulls, our wholesale or ourselves without using a company. And we figured it out. We could probably make money doing it for what, but the problem is so many of these insurance companies are abused. Some of the options we used to have aren't available anymore because some of those options were abused within industry from what I'd heard, at least. I mean, it's insurance is all risk versus return, right? And premium payers. And if right. there's more outgoing cash, 
than there are premium payers, that insurance option is probably going to go away. Absolutely. Corbin, you're you're getting ready for your first sale. What's that going to look like for you? A guarantee, a warranty? What are you planning? I think it's all stuff you have to start. And and we're a year out right now. And I've been telling Joe, like uh, Joe, and actually I've been telling Shana Strom, and I was, I was on the phone with her the other day, and I was like, I'm ready to start getting some of this stuff lined out. We've got a year to go. And I'm like, let's get a, let's sort of get, I, I want to get my theme rolling and all these other things. But as far as a guarantee goes, it's, I, we've already kind of developed that within our commercial customer base because we have been selling bulls private treaty. But uh, one of the things I always struggle with is where, I, where do I draw the line? And uh, I, I try to, I can tell there's a lot of discretion that goes into those types of decisions. So you may write something down on a catalog and say, oh, if you spend 3,500 or more, we'll deliver it and, and we'll guarantee a breeding season. But in a lot of ways it goes beyond that. And, and we'll, you know, I think you have to be, you have to, if you get a customer, you have to fight to keep that customer. And so I think there has to be, you have to have that understanding that uh, you have to take care of them and they'll take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I guess I have a similar approach, Corbin, and we're, we're in an incredibly competitive market. We haven't been as established as Bud uh, is and uh, for as long as he has been. So, so I always think that we have to go above and beyond. And so we, we do like a full one year guarantee and we guarantee them basically the, the owner's satisfaction. You get the bull home and, and six months later, you don't like the bull, then, uh, you know, we'll cover him. And, and we've talked about this on previous episodes. We've got some that will take advantage, some that won't. But with what these bulls cost these days and, and all the other inputs that these commercial producers are faced with, uh, I think it's probably the least we can do. And like I say, I, I think it's, you know, no more uh, claims than we have. I think it's you know, it's kind of negligible in the grand scheme of things. How about you, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I was just flipping through my catalog while we're sitting here looking at my policy. And it's funny because the policy that I have in the book isn't necessarily the policy we have anymore. Um, and I think that was early on, early on, we didn't know these people. I mean, I had a policy, like if a bull has a broken leg or a hurt leg or something, it was like, you have to have that verified by a veterinarian or, or myself would go do it. Well, technology's changed too. And people can send a text or a video, but what's also changed is when Bud gets to that piece of where he says that 80% of his people are repeat customers. We know there's a mutual success component. And we know that those folks care about us being their bull provider as much as we care about them being our customer. And so I probably, uh, I I like to make sure that the customer feels satisfied and that's different for everybody. I can think of one person on the coast that I was looking through their bulls, looking for a bull. And I said, where is he? And he said, well, he died. And I said, well, why, why didn't you call me? I mean, come on, you're supposed to, and he goes, no, that I don't feel like that's your problem. Well, we get in a big fight, we end up having lunch and, and he agrees to, to take an adjustment on the bull. And the reason I do that is I believe that there's a Venn diagram of value for these cattle. You guys know what the Venn diagram is, right? The two circles with the piece in the middle, one of them's genetics and one of them's service and the bull sale is in the center. And those are the two things that we provide customers. And um, at a sale barn anywhere, a bull's worth, what is he worth? He's worth $1.30 a pound. And the service piece and the genetics are what adds the value up to these eight, $10,000 sale averages or what they are. And and like Bud alluded with his female sale, 
you know, that's, that's, that's a bell and a whistle and the service component that does add value to those cattle. So guarantee I got a long ways from that and I'm the king of bloviating, but I will say that we try to make sure that our customers feel like they get value from their purchases and that they're protected from loss. I think we've uh, adequately dove into these sell expenses and uh, yeah, where you cut, I don't know. I think it's a case by case basis. Uh, it needs to be uh, uh, what you're comfortable with. It's your operation. But uh, in today's era, I mean, we've got to take a, a long, hard look at all those expenses and, and certainly do things as inexpensively as we can. But, but we, we certainly appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. No, and uh, for, for our listeners out there, I, I would urge all of them, if you don't know Bud, get to know him. What a what a great resource he is. Uh, I'm going to brag on Bud a little bit. Bud and I are actually real close to the same age, but uh, I've got a small list of, of folks in this world that I would consider a mentor, and, and Bud's one of those folks. And uh, I know the same can be said uh, for Corbin and Joe towards Bud. If folks want to learn about your program, obviously they can call you, then go to your website and uh, your number will be on there. But other than that, how, how do they get a hold of you? What's your web address? Uh, are you on social media? Yeah, we, we actually do both do Facebook. It's under Copel's B&B Angus. Um, we're on Facebook. And then, of course, Copel Family's on Facebook. So, I mean, you can find us there or you can go to our web page. Um, but if you ever get a chance, I'd sure welcome any of you. Then through the summer, if you come middle of August to look at my cattle, a week or two after we wean, I'd appreciate you didn't look at them because they look tough. Or... <laughs> hey, don't, but, but quit, quit doing that because I, I've been there at all times of the year. Your cattle always look good, but yeah, you, you do roll out the welcome mat for visitors. And before we go, what's your web address? That's BB Copal at cme.coop. Okay. That's, that's yeah. our email. And that'd be the best. Yep. That'd be the best way to get a hold of us. That's super. That's super. And uh, we wish you luck on getting uh, calving finished up. And uh, I know you're going to start breeding here before long. Best of luck to you. Yep. Thank you very much. We'll see you. You bet. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Ranch, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.